0: They um, before they are sent into exile, and this is a time for Israel of great economic prosperity. Things are going well, uh, there, there's not a whole lot of, of oppression going on with them. and so during a time of, of prosperity and expansion and security, Amos comes and prophesies them to them about their sin and uh so he's got quite a challenge for him particularly since they're sitting pretty right now he actually comes about 20 years before isaiah comes isaiah comes uh just before the exile and then actually a little bit into the exile and um so this is before the both the north and the south have have been uh taken into captivity the theme for that that we have for you there um is that god will bring judgment on those who thoughtlessly practice empty rituals. And so just like in the other prophets that we've studied so far, we'll see that we'll see God's anger that comes upon them because of their sin, a call for repentance, and then also a a uh, a uh, recognition of God's mercy. That is that the, that mercy is available to all who are willing to repent. And so these people, although they're acting corruptly, um, they're, there's basically two problems that, that the people of Israel have. We'll see this when we get get there. But <clears throat> one problem is that they're oppressing those who are poor and then they're not acknowledging those who are righteous. So they're they're really taking advantage of people and they're not acknowledging those who have actually followed God. Um so let's uh let's look at chapter one verse three we'll see who he who he prophesies to at first <clears throat> and by the way we have a uh, outline for you on the back of your handout as you read through it on your own help you see where where the prophet's going but let's look at chapter one verse three because what we need to see first is that Amos kind of of uh, helps Israel to see that that uh that God hates sin. And he does it by pointing out the sin of other nations, nations that would have that Israel would have hated. Look at chapter one verse three. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. He he goes on the next two verses to tell what the problems were with this uh, this area of Damascus or Syria, and then in verse six, he moves on to the next place. Thus says the Lord: For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. Gaza was one of the um, one of the Philistine tribes, one of the five Philistine cities. He uh, had Gath and and Ekron, and Ashkelon, and I forget what the fifth one was. but um, So this is talking to Philistia Ph- or the Philistines. And you see that later in verse 8. So then he moves on to verse 9. Talk about the next region. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not re- remember the covenant of brotherhood. And then for the next verse, he continues. Then verse 11, we see the next region. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because he pursued his brothers with the sword, and so on. And then verse 13, we have Ammon. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke his punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. And, uh, and so on. So, Israel and Judah are so far, so far are looking at all these wicked sins and saying, yes, 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 they deserve God's punishment. continues in chapter 2, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. And so, all these Gentile, these pagan nations, God is, is bringing judgment upon them and He continues with the same refrain for three transgressions of and for four. I will not revoke its punishment because... And He does that for every single one. But notice in chapter 2, verse 4, for Israel it comes a little closer to home. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept its statutes. And so on. So Israel's probably thinking at this point, okay, we understand the Gentile nations. Okay, they're they're wicked. They're opposed to God. They deserve God's wrath, definitely. But now it comes to Judah, and, and perhaps they're thinking, well, I can understand that too. Okay, that's Judah. They they're not as as godly as we are. All the rituals that we go through, they're probably not doing them as well as us. So although it's a little bit closer to home, we understand. And and then the bomb gets dropped in chapter three, verse six, or chapter two, verse six. Excuse me. Thus says the Lord: for three transgressions of Israel, and for four. And at this time, it's like, whoa! Wait a second here. Us? I mean, you're, you're lumping us in with all these pagan nations. And and uh, Amos tells them on behalf of God why he says, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. So now the now the, the the prophecy comes down to where Amos was directing it. See, he was kind of softening the blow at first. He's saying this is what Philistia has done. This is what uh the people from Ammon and Moab they've all done these things. And Judah and now you also are responsible for your own sin. And God is serious about your sin and He's going to to come in judgment. And um, look at chapter 3, verse 2, because it seems as if God is giving them a greater responsibility because of who they are. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. They were supposed to be the lighthouse to the people, the Gentiles. They were the ones who sh- were supposed to be showing what kind of service God wanted. And so, if the Gentile nations or Judah would look at Israel, they would be able to see, oh, this is what God wants. And instead, they were finding that Israel was no different from them. There was no distinction between Israel and the pagan nations. And God says, that's not acceptable you're behaving just as corruptly and immorally as these pagan nations, and I will not accept that. What we learn here is that God's election, that is, the fact that God had chosen Israel, does not exonerate them or exempt them from doing righteousness or from being holy. In fact, it heightens their responsibility to be holy. What happens is, when people take that doctrine of election the doctrine that says that god has chosen us before the foundations of the world that he has made us his people they take that a little bit too far and they say well since he has chosen us it's vacation time we sit back god's chosen us we're all set and yet here we learn that god's election actually calls us to more righteousness to pure holiness You have been separated, but you've been separated for a purpose. You've been called out for a purpose not to sit back and not have to do anything, but actually to display My glory, to show My holiness. So, election understood properly, that is that God has chose us, when it is understood properly, never leads us to presumption or to, to fatalism. We just sit back and... Let what be, be. But rather, it should lead us to, if we rightly understand it, to greater responsibility. Look at chapter 3, verse 2 again. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And this is no different from what we saw when we were looking at Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be My own. Peter says the same thing to us in 1 Peter 1.15, Just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because why? What does God say there? Because I am holy. You have a responsibility to be holy because I have chosen you. Later on, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen Generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So he he piles up synonyms of what kind of people there are. They're called out people. They're chosen. They're they're special. They're peculiar. And then he tells why. So that, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God called you to be a Christian in this case. Okay, we'll, we'll make application for ourselves. We're not Israel. But God has called you, if He has called you to be a Christian, then He's called you for a purpose. And that is to display God's glory. First, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that the end of our predestination, the end of the fact that God has chosen us, should lead to holiness. He goes on in several verses and and talks about verses three through fourteen, which is all one sentence in the in the Greek, and he says, "Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, for He chose us, okay? He called us out in him before the creation of the world. why to be holy and blameless in his sight. God called you for a purpose, not to sit back." and become presumptuous upon His grace, but to be holy. Any questions so far? Or comments? Bill?
1: Well, you might know it, because I know it, because it's in your heart, but what about your testimony to these other people? And why won't you go to church from time to time? If you can't go all the time, why don't you go to I don't want it. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I to, when we, after that discussion, I just kind of go wrong. Like I said, I can't share your heart, but yeah. it do not seem right to me. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. Trish?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: right mhm, yeah. If you don't recognize what you've been given, what you've actually received, then you won't live up to it. You won't care about it. um Jesus said that those who are my brothers and sisters and mother. Remember when his family was trying to get a hold of him, he was inside of a, a large crowd of people and they sent word to him. He said, the ones who do my will, these are my brothers and sisters and mother. In other words, my family are the ones who actually follow what God is doing. Not people who just say that they're, they're his family. Okay? And they very well could be. I think it wasn't really till later that much of his family came to uh, saving knowledge of Christ, but um, his point was that his family is not those who have blood ties to him. It's those who actually do God's will. That's who he really—that's um, who he really relates to. Good. Uh, Amos chapter five and six. Amos is not only ridiculing and condemning the people; he's also telling them that they need to escape judgment. Um, actually, I skipped Amos two six through twelve. Let me do that um, before I get ahead of myself. <clears throat> let's see now why this judgment here is promised. Um, let's look at a couple of texts. chapter two verses six through eight. Really captures a lot of the uh, the problem. And as I, as I read these things, I want you to notice these two things that I mentioned earlier. Their are two problems are these oppression in order for themselves to get rich. And then also oppression on those who strive to do what is right. Okay, so oppression in order to get rich, and then oppression on those who are trying to do right. Verse 6 of chapter 2. For three transgressions, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house uh, of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Do you hear it there in verse 6, 7, and 8? We see the oppression of the poor. In order for them to get rich, they're willing to take a poor person and, and sell them for the price of a pair of sandals. I mean, it's really ridiculous how little they get for it, but they just care about increasing their pocketbook. They don't care about the the welfare of other people. And then in the middle of verse 7, it says, "...they turn aside the way of the humble." This is the oppression of those who are doing what is right. And we could see um, more of this later, but uh, notice verse 12, "...but you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy." So you see the oppression of the godly again. You remember the Nazarites? These are ones who had taken a vow, Nazarite vow. Do you remember what the Nazarite vow required you not to do? There were three things. Not to cut your hair. Not to drink wine. wine. Anyone else? Not to touch a dead body. Right. And you remember the most famous Nazarite, right? Who's that? Samson, right? He did all three seemingly, um, and uh, and so what these people are doing here in Israel is that they're taking these people who have made a special vow to God, that I'm going to be set apart to God and I'm going to to take this special vow that goes above and beyond what my responsibility is, and they're forcing them to drink wine. Not in the sense where they're, okay, open up your mouth and we're going to pour it in you and drink it, that sort of thing. More like, uh, they're probably uh enticing them to drink wine. Uh we don't know for sure, but but the idea is they're that they're getting someone to do something that's against what God had told them. And um so they they really have no desire to serve God. Their their desire is for their own personal reasons. And uh Jesus' words in, in Matthew 25 kind of uh, stick out here when we think of the judgment that will come on the world. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch you did to one of the least of these brethren, you did it to me. Now, we understand that we get saved by justification through faith, that our salvation is based in in Jesus Christ. But as Trish was saying earlier, it's evidenced in how we live if we recognize that that we actually what we have received in Jesus Christ, and it will evidence forth in how we treat other people. And for the church, that specifically means people within our church, or primarily means, I should say. It doesn't exclude our responsibility to poor people outside of our church, but it does primarily concern our relationship to people within our church and helping to meet those needs. And we see that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 and other passages. Okay, now we'll move to Amos chapter 5 and 6. Um, he's not only ridiculing and condemning the people, he also tells them how they can escape judgment. So, just like all the other prophecies, he's saying, listen, this is what you've done, this is your sin, this is the judgment that's going to come upon you, and now here's the grace that can come if you repent. Um, chapter 5, verse 14 Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus, may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph." So, the point is, you've sinned. God demands that your sin be judged. But if you repent, this is the part we're at right now, then God will grant mercy. We'll see that here in just a minute. But 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 God really is not satisfied with the way that they're living. And we see this famous passage here in verse 21 of chapter 5. I hate, I reject your festivals, God says, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not, not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take them away from me. Or take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. So here you can see Amos Amos's concern for justice and righteousness. That it's not enough to go through, as we saw in the theme, it's not enough to go through empty rituals. Those mean nothing to God. The rituals in and of themselves mean nothing to God. What He wants is He wants their heart. He wants to see that their whole life is is poured into doing what God wants. Is bathed in the grace of God and wants to see that grace poured out on other people. The rest of the book contains a series of visions aimed at bringing the people to repent. And um, so, we'll just look at one vision... Um, we have this common pattern that continues, that that pattern of accusation, judgment, repentance, and mercy. And, um, And so, we'll see that this book actually ends in hope. But let's just look at one vision. Chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day... I will raise up the fallen booth or tent of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by My name. Now, up until this point, up until chapter 9, verse 10, it's been pretty much doom and gloom. you sinned. You deserve judgment. You need to repent. But here we see a measure of hope. That there are a few bright spots for those who come to repent, and here we have this great promise that is not just designed for these people, but is designed for us as well. Thou will raise up this fallen tent of David, and uh, this will happen on that great day, which we know as the Day of the Lord, like we studied last week, and we'll see a little bit later on today. But does anyone know what the fallen tent? Of David, or the fallen booth of David refers to?
1: I'm not sure if what the fallen booth that he refers to, but the Lord Jesus eventually set up the kingdom. Right. David. <coughs> he's the greater son of David that's beset in Jerusalem.
0: So, right. Yep, and I would agree. The fallen tent has to do with, um, with the exile or the removal from God's favor. The, the captivity where where Israel and Judah both go and um, are oppressed by the the foreign nations it's really a removal from uh, of God's people from God's land, and ultimately that will be, be restored fully with Jesus Christ. And that will happen through the line of David. That's why it's talking about the fallen tent or the fallen booth of David. So David's line was supposed to be set up. Remember, David said, "God, I'm going to build a house for you," and God says, "Actually, David, I'm going to build a house for you." He's not talking about a a, a physical structure. He's talking about a line, a a a descendancy, uh, a hierarchy that he that would continue throughout all the ages and and who and which would have a king. on uh, which would never die, or that would live forever and ever. So David's line would be like un- unlike any other line in human history, and that it would continue on forever. And so that's what it's referring to. This it's going to be strained for a short period of time in this exile, and and in many ways we are 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 um, are waiting that day when Christ will restore that line perfectly, when it will be rebuilt, that booth will be rebuilt. Then in verses 13-15, through we have a description of this newly created heaven and earth. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, verse 13, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treaders of grape, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord. This is this ultimate day of salvation that, that we talked about last week in Joel. The day in which God would restore the not only the spiritual um fellowship of the people with God, but also there's going to be great economic prosperity. That these terms of the land flowing with, with wine is the idea of, of great prosperity, that they would have nothing uh, they would have no needs, in other words. And so what we're we're going back to um, is we're we're going back to that time when the universe was in perfect order, when when God was fellowshipping with his people and there were there was no harm of that relationship, and also that the the um, the earth as a whole had no problems. It was uh, the 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 prosperity that would come was was great, and and um, God was honored in that way. And that's where God's leading us back to. So in in between that time, between X, or Genesis three and Revelation nineteen, we have this time of straining. This time where the creation groans for that day when God will restore it back to where he had originally created it. Yeah, Trish. Yeah, I, they could um, I think 11 and 12 have already happened verses 11 and 12 that is at least a portion where they have been taken into exile verses 13 through 15 is millennial language that's talking about something that is going to be unlike anything that Israel has ever seen in that they will never be uprooted from the land again which we don't know if that, that you know that's actually going to happen again or not but but they will never be uprooted from the land, and they will stay there, and there will be great prosperity with with the land. Um, but yeah, they they very well could believe that that's already happened. But I don't um, I don't see how they could because they're still waiting for their Messiah. You know, it'd be kind of odd. I don't know. It's hard to say. But it's a good point. So, ultimately, what the people of Israel should recognize from Amos is that this world is not all that there is to live for. That we should store up our treasures in heaven. That to get rich here is not as, as valuable as getting rich eternally. And so we should, should lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And that requires that we take seriously our relationship with God and that we um, repent of our sin when we need to repent and we need to turn back to, to God and uh, see Him honored. So it's not just about rituals, Amos is telling us. It's not just about going through the motions. God would say, oh, listen, I hate those festivals. I hate those things that you do. What I want is I want justice rolling down like water from a river. I want to see it pour out from you in every aspect of your life. Even where other believers are not watching, I'm always watching and I'm concerned about that. Alright, any questions or comments on Amos? Bill?
1: Uh, It's going to be beautiful for them for three and a half years, but at the end of that three and a half years, all hell is going to break loose. Yeah. Because that's when he's going to turn against them. And when he turns, they're going to, it's too late, but a whole lot of people believe that but they live in a constant fear day and night right now you just got them in turmoil you've got them in turmoil right and the Lord Jesus says there is no peace to be
0: yeah and
1: and, and this is ungodly violence. That yeah.
0: I mean, yeah that's a good point because in, in other parts of of the prophets we find that that not only will it be a time of great economic prosperity, but it will actually be a time of peace. And um I don't know that any Jew would be willing to say that they're at peace <laughs> right now.
1: I haven't met one
0: yet. Yeah. So, good. All right, let's move on to Obadiah. Obadiah is the next book in your Bible. One of the shortest books in the Bible. And... um similar to Joel in that we have no kings mentioned, so it's hard to date this book. But we do have an Obadiah mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 18. And so if this is the same man, then this probably was written or prophesied in the middle of the 9th century B.C., about 845, about the same time as Elijah. Um, and Obadiah, Obadiah is, is different from the ones we've studied so far in that he does not address either the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah at all. He doesn't address either one of them. Instead, he addresses Edom. And uh, the Edomites were descendants of whom? Esau, Esau, right? Jacob's brother. So out of Jacob, you had Israel. And out of Esau, you had Edom. Edom, I think, means red. And so it's um, it's applicable to to who uh, Esau was. Well, that's significant because from the very beginning, Jacob and Esau were at war. In fact, from the time that they were in the womb, they were at war. And uh, they continued. Jacob stole his birthright in effect. And um, and uh, Jacob was afraid of Esau for much of his life. Uh, they did get reconciled shortly. But but their people from that time on, certainly the stories must have continued how what Jacob and Rachel had done to Esau. And so their descendants were continually at war with one another. Um, and so Edom is really an oppressive cousin and neighbor of Israel. And the theme that we see here is that God will sovereignly rule in judgment and blessing. And um, so you can read all about Edom's history of, of mistreating Israel uh, It's throughout the entire Old Testament really. And now God's long-suffering for them has come to an end. He's given them an opportunity to repent. They have not. And so let's take a look at the text right now. Verse, verses 2-4 through four. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before Me. But Jonah rose... I'm in the wrong chapter. Jonah's not in Obadiah. Chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 2 Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, for there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You can hear in Obadiah's com- comments the the pride that is there in their hearts. Verse 3 specifically mentions their pride that they're set up in the clefts of the rock. there. They're really on on a rock called Petra, and which means rock, and it was actually a really well fortified city. It's hard to um to get past those in, seemingly impregnable walls, also known as the home of the heights and um And so they had this attitude that they were unconquerable. You see that at the end of verse three. Who will bring me down to earth? This is Obadiah speaking on behalf of Edom. This is what you say about yourself. Who will bring me down? Well, in verse 4, God tells them who will bring them down. He says at the end, I will bring you down. You think you're set up really high. You think your uh, your walls are impregnable. I am God and I will bring you down. And in that arrogance, Edom had oppressed Israel. We see this in verses 10 and 11. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame and you'll be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, gate and cast lots of Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Esau had seen, uh, I believe it was Assyria, could be Babylon, I'm not sure, but one of Israel's enemies, oppressing them, and Edom just sat by and watched. They enjoyed it. In fact, they even looted Israel while they were pulled out from their own place. Look at verse 15, because this has greater significance for just the people of Edom. Verse 15, "...for the day the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head, because just as you drink on My holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually." They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. This is something that's going to happen to all of the enemies of God. So, in other words, people, the Gentile nations, the foreign, the pagan nations, the people who oppose God in that last day of judgment will be treated much like Edom is treated. They will be treated with judgment because God's mercy will run out. Look at verse 17 though. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. It's not just a day of judgment. It's also a day of salvation for those who take refuge in God. And so, this should remind us of the New Testament teachings about Christ's return. That the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord and the wrath that will come on that day will be much like it is on Edom, that they will be swept away and never to be remembered. But that there is hope. There is hope for those who take refuge in God. Turn to Second Thessalonians chapter one. Second Thessalonians chapter one. We'll read verses 4-10. through 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. God has already visited the earth once in the form of Jesus Christ, but He's coming back a second time and He will not be long-suffering at that time. He will come in judgment. That will come at the end of the tribulation. It will be a time of great sorrow for all those who oppose God and who have rejected His grace for all this time. And Jesus made it very clear to those of us who are Christians in John 15, verse 18, that if the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept My word, they will keep yours also. He also said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, that we are like sheep amongst wolves. He, he, he said, you know, if I was persecuted, then you as My follower will be persecuted as well. So, we need to count the cost of following God. What is it going to require of us if we're going to to follow Jesus Christ, Jesus says it will come at a great cost. But there's hope for those who repent and um, and turn to Christ as their salvation, as we just read. That there is vindication, there is justification for those who who uh, who turn to God for mercy. And until that day. We need to take the words of Jesus very seriously. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where we read, "...but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven." We think of these people who are opposed to God. We could call them heathens, people who reject God. And we, like Israel, can become kind of high and a little bit lofty and look at them and say... God is going to judge you and almost wish that upon people who are rejecting Him. But what Jesus says instead is not to wish that type of retribution on anyone, although we should long for the day when God will be justified in the sense that He will be seen to be just. We should long for that day, but we should not wish that on other people. In fact, we should recognize that we were those people. And that if it were not for the grace of God, so would we be. And so instead of looking on them, we pray for them. We we uh, show love to them, those people who persecute us. Jesus gave us probably the greatest example when he said on the cross to to God with regard to his executors, really, Matthew chapter or Luke chapter twenty three verse thirty four. What do he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have a great responsibility. God has chosen us to be His children. And and uh, we should not take that lightly. We should not feel as if we deserved it in any way. We should look at other people with great mercy and want to see God pour out His mercy on them as well. Any questions or comments on Obadiah? Bill? Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's actually in Obadiah where it, yeah, there are the murderers I, I forget what they call them not not murderers but some people were coming after them and they would stand at the crossroads and and tell them yeah uh, verse fourteen of chapter one of Obadiah do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress so Israel is looking for a way to escape. And instead of uh, getting shelter from these cousins of theirs, they uh, they get they get oppression. They stand at the fork of the. That's the one I was thinking. But I think what you were saying is they actually maybe verse thirteen. Do not gloat over their calamity and their day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth. Um, yeah, I, I know what you're referring to, but. Um, I think that is in Obadiah. I just can't find the verse. So.
1: I think it's in Numbers. The Edomites actually went behind the Israel and killed the old, the weak, and the women uh, as, they, <clears throat> as they traveled through and got close to the border of Edom. Right. They went behind and murdered a lot of them
0: also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, no love lost there. Alright, we do need to uh, dismiss, so let me pray. Ask God's blessing on the next service and for us to take these things to heart. Lord, we do need Your grace and we um, we want to never grow tired of it. We pray that You would continually pour it out upon us. Thank You for showing us um, the the seriousness of our own sin and the wonder of the cross. And we pray that You would help us to remember that uh, freshly this morning even as we take the Lord's Supper that we would uh, recognize the judgment that we deserved apart from Jesus Christ we do thank you for him and for the righteousness that we can have in him and the ability now to be able to be accepted before you and to, be, to, to do righteous things help us to take our uh, election seriously that we would Recognize that we have a greater responsibility now that You have chosen us. Help us to be holy in all that we do. And we pray for the service to follow. You would set our affections on You as we turn to Your Word.